the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the classroom, save the country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Abigail Johnson. Welcome to Education America, where we are working to save the classroom so that we can save the country. Join the conversation. K-12 education is the playing field where the battle is on for the future of our country. And as the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln succinctly stated, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Well, we are happy to be here again today in studio, Abigail and I. It's nice to see you again, Abigail. Good to see you here. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, we've got kind of... Not the best weather here in Minnesota this week, but we've had a beautiful winter, really. Lots mm-hmm. of gorgeous snow and uh, warm temperatures, which for Minnesota is a welcome, it is a change, welcome change from most Januarys. <laughs> so, well, Abigail, I think you're going to introduce the wonderful guest that we had on with us again last week, just so that we can refresh our listeners. Absolutely. Tonight, we are wrapping up our series on communism, uh, providing a little bit of a primer for everyone out there about what is communism. It's so easy to feel like it's so very far away. And we would love to bring a little bit more information, helping people see, unfortunately, it's a bit closer than maybe some of us are comfortable with. And we have with us Ambassador Andrew Bremberg. He is um, the president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, Previously, he served as the representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us again this evening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, last week we left off talking about this fairly recent discovery in northwestern region of China called the Xinjiang Police Files. Can you reiterate for our listeners what those files are, a little bit about how they were found, and then what you're learning from those files about communism in general, yeah. China specifically? Yes, th- this was a truly uh, incredible uh, treasure trove of documents. So uh, as I mentioned last year, a brave hacker from behind the Chinese firewall wow. had successfully hacked one of their police station computers and basically got out tens of thousands of computer files. Mm -hmm. And knowing uh, our organization's commitment to exposing the truth, and led by Dr. Adrian Zenz, the the director of our China Studies work, who is the world expert on the genocide taking place in Xinjiang in Western China right now, sent those documents to us. And so all all last year, we've been releasing those documents, um, providing translations and analysis 
of these, these I got tens of thousands of documents that show that what is happening in Western China is a mass detention of upwards of 2 million people that have been detained uh, because they have their ethnic and religious minorities in Western China. This is an effort by the CCP to, you know, of a genocide to get rid of these people um, by um, arresting them, by separating parents from children, um, by in inserting, you know, predominantly men from other parts of China with Uyghur women in the communities and sending them out into forced labor, both within the Xinjiang region and, un- and unfortunately in other parts of China where they're using these individuals as slave labor. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Just heartbreaking. And this is happening today. This is happening right now. And many Americans unwittingly are buying products from China that are made by slave labor if it's involving labor from the Xinjiang region. Um, even though our Congress just last year passed a law uh, banning the importation of goods made by slave labor from Xinjiang that went into effect uh, last summer, in the summer of 2022. And, of course, importers are still trying to get around it. And we need to demand that our government vigorously enforce this law. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Ambassador while... Rittig, are they getting around it through... Is there a grandfather clause in that nope. legislation? Or how are they seeking to circumvent the legislation? Sure. So obviously, when, when Congress passes a bill and the president signs it, it then has to be implemented on a daily basis by the agencies responsible for, um, for, for those provisions. So this is part of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, uh, CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, that we would normally think of on the immigration side. This is also customs. They handle customs of shipments coming in um, from other countries. And they have huge logistical challenges and have to make important data decisions around what data they require from importers and also how they can make that data more transparent so that people can see uh, where, pack, where imports are originating from. One, one big um, difference is that, uh, of course, in response to this legislation, you have fewer shipments that are stamped as having come from Xinjiang, because, of course, the exporters know that that will be stopped. So um, one thing they're doing is even though we know the products originate in Xinjiang or their source materials originate in Xinjiang, they then get repackaged or produced in a different part of China, stamped with a different origin and are tempted to be brought in. But unfortunately, we know much of the polysilicon, which is the base material for so many solar panels, is almost exclusively um, originates from the Xinjiang region, as well as many other products that require a lot of um, labor, particularly in the agriculture and other textile industry. Um, The issue of cotton, the global cotton supply Mm -hmm. is um, completely saturated with cotton from Xinjiang. And we need to put in place tighter restrictions to ensure that cotton coming in whether to the United States or through other countries, is not being sourced from Xinjiang, which utilizes this horrible slave labor. Hmm. So really, it, it comes down to knowing which products are made there and, and then really starting to zero in on those products and making sure that we're that's tracking right. And of them. course, and, and that's why and individual Americans are you know, trying to raise their families and, right. and, and deal with everyday life. They, they can't take on a full-time job right. of trying to educate themselves of what, where every product is coming from. That's why we depend on our government to actually enforce the laws that have been passed to yeah. say, 
they will they will do the research, find out what's coming and block it. And that, that's what we need to demand more of. Um, and while while in, these importation bans are hugely important, unfortunately, many other countries that profess to support human democracy and human rights have not implemented these yet, mm-hmm. like our, those countries in Europe or other parts of the world. Um, this is an important piece that we need to continue to you know, educate people about and demand accountability on. Mm-hmm. But, but I also just want to mention another aspect is the really personal stories. So, of course, there are um, Uyghurs that live all around the world in exile from Xinjiang mm-hmm. and whose family members have been detained and have not heard from in years. Mm-hmm. And our foundation just uh, at the end of last year uh, released a new video they're part of our witness project. These are short form, you know, eight to 10 minute mini documentaries of, from a person's personal experience, their experience dealing with communism. Mm-hmm. And our latest one was done at the end of 2022 of an incredibly brave woman named Nuriman, who is a Uyghur that escaped um, Xinjiang, whose family disappeared and she could not uh, ever you know, hear from or f- confirm what, what happened to them. What was incredible last year when we released the Xinjiang police files, we actually um, had personally identifiable information on tens of thousands of people within certain counties of the Xinjiang region. Mm -hmm. And she was able to find, finally, actual confirmation of when her family members were detained. She happened to be from one of those counties we had the in-depth information on. And it's a really, I want to you know, encourage for, for your listeners to check out that video from our witness project. Yes. Um, it's a really powerful story and it tells people uh, it th- not just through you know, facts and figures and numbers of people detained, but a person and a family's real story of what's happening today. Yeah. And I will just speak personally, just saying anyone listening, it is absolutely worth your time. I did have a few minutes to, to look at some of the videos, Ambassador, that you all put together and they're incredibly well done. Um, the stories are so very well told. And I hope that it encourages people to see that this isn't something that happened a long, long time ago. And we, we've turned the page on evil in the world. But instead, it shows us that unfortunately, it puts a face to the very fact that evil is in fact, still very much alive and well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very right. sad. Um, you were getting into some detail also last week, um, Ambassador Brunberg, right before we ended the show, uh, regarding some of the horrific things that you are learning those, these poor individuals who are being brought into these forced labor camps are having to experience. And one of the things that you talked about was um, organ harvesting. And I think, you know, we're all familiar in the U.S. with the term organ donor, right? Because it's a volitional right. decision. Um, but the impression we were getting from you is that this was not a volitional decision, thus the title organ harvesting. Can you talk with us a little bit about what is really happening? And again, this is in this day and age. Yes. So, so th- this is a truly um, grotesque uh, you know, they call it medical practice um, in China, where um, th- for, for decades now, their, their policy has changed and evolved. But for decades, they have had a policy of involuntary you know, organ harvesting, where through prisoners or political prisoners or other um, different minority groups have been um, persecuted and killed for their organs. Uh, Ch- China boasts a very, very short and efficient uh, 
organ donation timeframe. So, of course, people in the United States understand about organ donation and that they may have heard of you know, friends or in relatives or hear about people waiting on a donation list, waiting till a biological match mm-hmm. comes up. Mm-hmm. And, of course, China uh, boasts that they have a very, very short waiting list. And the reason is that for several decades and their policies have evolved for a long time, they basically exclusively um, did organ harvesting of prisoners and were and were very transparent about it. They, really? they said that's where they got all their organs from. Yeah. Wow. Um, then they, they they then claimed to have changed this policy, although their their, their numbers didn't change. Um, and and what our foundation has done uh, extensive research on, on a couple levels, documenting what's happening in their organ program. One that clearly um, their voluntary program, um, to, as you, in any way that you can document it, cannot account for all the organs they are actually. Um, quote, donating or transplanting in, in a given year. Really? But one report that we issued just last year that was just horrifying, and I want to say this was a report that we didn't just issue. This was a report that was published in the American Journal of Transplantation. This is the global leading peer review scientific journal about organ transplantation topics writ large. Uh-huh. And that peer review journal published uh, the, the research by one of our senior fellows, Matthew Robertson, who had looked at Chinese source data. So these are re- medical reports by the Chinese doctors and hospitals where these organ transplantations had taken place and showed that in their own medical reports, we clearly documented that their practices had changed organ transplants transplantation surgeons into executioners. The whole premise of organ transplantation is that the donor is deceased and that the donor has died through natural or other causes unrelated to the organ donation. Mm -hmm. But what they were able to show in the medical record, it was clearly stated in how they were performing the procedures, that the patient was still alive when they had already started to harvest their organs. I mean, this, this, is, this is really, you know, horrific, yeah. horrific things to think about. And what was so, I think, important and clear was that our fellow you know, co-authored this paper with a world, one of the world's leading organ transplant surgeons to go through in painstaking detail to show that the procedures made clear they were violating what in the medical ethics world is called the dead donor rule, mm-hmm. right? That, that these organ donors are supposed to be deceased. Right. And what was clear is, the person was still breathing and that to get more technical later in the process where they had already started to harvest the organs, they then intubated the patient. What? And that, that was the kind of clear sign that the patient had obviously still been alive before they had started. And it was really horrific. So um, this is of course something that they've done historically with prisoners, uh, but also then uh, different minority groups. um, Most kind of, Famously, the Falun Gong, who are a you know, religious minority that is deeply persecuted by the CCP. And we have concerns now that this has spread and also now being done with Uyghur populations. Oh, my goodness. It's incredibly barbaric. It's hard to imagine that in this day and age, people would still treat human beings with such disdain and lack of care. And it's hard to imagine these surgeons even being willing to do the work that they're being asked to do. And I suppose they're under the watchful eye of the CCP too. And if they don't do it, they're in trouble. 
certainly. But but I also I think it's something you made a good point. It's hard for us to imagine doing something like this. But part of the you know poison of a communist regime and society is the way it poisons the minds of, of its own citizens. Mm-hmm. Right? What what communism is teaching is that the notion of the individual or individual rights is completely secondary and subservient to their idea of what is societal greater good. Yeah. So they're doing a greater good, you know, a, a presumably you know, younger, healthier, and obviously more um, socially valuable person who's, who's not a minority group or not in prison mm-hmm. is going to benefit from getting this new organ. So okay. if, if you remove our kind of Western understanding of basic individual rights, right. it's, this is why it's easy to see how people under this type of regime can fall prey to this type of thinking when they put the, the, the good for society, you know, societal or communal goods above individual rights. Because obviously I mean, we, we can think of all sorts of scenarios where lots of more people can benefit from me violating your rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really a good point that you make there because it's always been known that communist countries are much more collectivist and Western countries right. are much more about the individual. And this was actually one of the things that I have been noticing over the last many years and then even even prior to COVID, but then especially with COVID and how um, the idea of collectivism has really taken root in America. Mm-hmm. And with COVID, especially the COVID lockdowns and how it was handled was a very, it was, it was very Chinese oriented. It seems like they were maybe taking a page out of the Chinese playbook on how to handle COVID in the U.S. And I don't want us to get too far off base here, but less people think that these ideas aren't coming into the American Western culture. I think we really need to take a step back and realize, no, these, these ideas are coming into our culture. And would you want to address that, the collectivism versus the individualism, and then kind of how that relates to the fact that these communists do not like religious groups at all, and mm-hmm. kind of why? Sure, I, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, as, as you said, the, the, the collectivism, that, that is the core you know, kind of underlying ideology of these communist regimes, mm-hmm. and that you know, the, the importance or the worth or value of individuals is not seen in any kind of inherent goodness of them themselves or they're kind of endowed by their creator of any kind of God-given rights, but in terms of their utility. And communism inputs a very utilitarian approach to um, society, that you know, you, your value is based off of how, you know, how you should be treated is based off of how you will um, best help the, the, the collective. And that is a that is in and of itself its own ideology. Yeah. That is a particular ideology that you know comes originally from Karl Marx and has developed further since then. And I I focus on that because religions are ideologies. Mm-hmm. And that is why every communist regime, you know, today and going back for the last hundred years, has always persecuted religions mm-hmm. because it cannot tolerate competing ideologies within their system or within their society. Now, mm-hmm. now if we go all the way back to Marx, in his original you know, Communist Manifesto, I mean, Marx has the famous quote where he refers to religion as the opium of the masses. Right. Right? He compares it to opium because he believes religion 
is basically a drug that is providing kind of temporary, this illusion of temporary relief from pain and suffering and to fool the masses and allow them to be controlled by the capitalist or the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this has its origins in Marx, this outright hostility to religion. But what we see then is in every communist regime, I mean, beginning with Lenin through whether it's China or Cuba today, this persecution of religion, because if an individual has, as I said, a different ideology, a different view of how humanity, you know, who are we? Where do we come from? What are our ends? Philosophically, what what are we ordered to? Mm -hmm. And does the notion of God have a calling on us greater than the state? That ideology, whichever religion potentially takes shape in, is obviously oppositional to the communist ideology and therefore a danger. And that's why in every regime you see severe religious persecution. Now, that that takes on different forms, like as under the Soviet Union, uh, particularly under its you know a very brutal uh, persecution of both the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church at the time under you know, Soviet communism in Central and Eastern Europe, or in Latin America and the you know uh, in Cuba today, but also uh, other countries where communist regimes are you know very hostile to the Catholic Church because it's seen as being again an alternate philosophy, an alternate way of viewing the truth about the human person that then makes callings on people, you know, make them make moral demands on how people should act. So this well, is it undermines one of the China. core tenets of communism, which, as I've studied more and more, unfortunately, been diving into the works of Paulo Freire lately, which is a Brazilian philosopher who uh, piggybacked quite a bit off of Marx. Um, and, you know, one of the common themes with communism is is that if we just work hard enough, Utopia is possible here on this earth, which is in direct contradiction to both the Christian faith, uh, the Jewish faith, also Muslim faith. No one, no other religion. Yeah, any other religion says this world is not your home. The things you do on this earth matter, but it's you're doing it for the purpose of a better life after death. Whereas communism is in direct violation of that, saying no, no, no. If we do enough pushing and shoving and quashing, we can create utopia here on Earth. And if people are not bought and sold into that philosophy that we can do this here, if instead they're focused on, no, I need to do what my God claims for me after death, um, they're not going to go along with Mm -hmm. what others are claiming can be attainable here on Earth. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and I also say, uh, not Obviously, the communists and all the communist regimes have this utopian underpinning that you mentioned, as did the Nazis, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, and I always remind people, the, the, the most horrific, bloodiest, most murderous regimes have all been utopian. So whenever people talk about utopian ideals, I say, if someone's coming at you with a utopian solution, run away. Because <laughs> millions of people could get killed. Right. Um, and, and, and because the issue is, you're right. All these all the world religions have a clear sense that there's something different beyond transcendent from this world mm-hmm. and that things will not be perfect given, you know, our fallen nature or, or however they theologically base their view of humanity. And what communism does, because it's so utilitarian and utopian, is that, no, we can get there. And that's what helps justify mm-hmm. the horrific actions, because 
your resistance to my you know, communist goal, th- theoretically, you are doing such damage to so many. And we could reach this utopian goal, but for your opposition. Right. So whatever we need to do to sacrifice you or your goods or values is obviously worth the cost. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what feeds in because it's, it's this utopian vision and this, this utilitarian means of getting there that, that helps people justify. Mm-hmm. You know, all these people that do these, these tremendously evil, murderous acts, mm-hmm. genuinely in their own minds, they don't think it's the evil act, right? Mm-hmm. Many of them believe, come, come to believe this will lead to a better long-term outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the, the, the ideology so damaging and so dangerous. Right, right. You know, I, our time always goes so quickly. It's amazing. We could listen to you talk all day long, I think, and we are learning so much. But we really only have about three and a half minutes left and really just about three minutes. And I know we do want to talk a little bit more about your curriculum. Um, the the Victims of Communist Museum and Foundation is wanting to educate Americans about communism and its effect on religion specifically, but on our culture. Um and there is a new curriculum out. We did get to talk about this a little bit with Ken Pope when we had him on. But can you tell us a little bit specifically about what the Victims of Communist curriculum does to cover the effects of the communism of relig- or uh, against religion? Sorry. Yes, we, we, we discuss religion in many chapters where we talk about individual, like the rise of communism and individual countries' experience of communism. But in fact, we have an entire chapter that's specifically dedicated to religious persecution uh, under communism, starting with Marx, leading through Lenin's ideology and the Soviet persecutions that I mentioned, and up to today, present day, China, which I just want to take a moment just to mention. In China, they know religion is a powerful force that they can't completely eradicate or eliminate. Mm-hmm. So what they have is they have five legal religions in and officially recognized religions in the state that the state actually attempts to basically regulate or control. Mm-hmm. And religions that are not recognized are, you know, strongly persecuted. You know, the whole um, individual house churches yeah. that pop up in China are you know shut down. People are arrested. Yeah. And then the large institutional religions in churches, whether it's mainline Protestant, Catholic or, 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 or Islam, are heavily regulated by state-controlled agencies that decide who will be priests, who like, who will preach. You know, just in the last year, we've seen churches stripped of religious artwork and pictures of Mao or Xi Jinping put up in the churches. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, wow. I mean, pe- people need to understand the level of persecution of not just Muslims in Western China, but Christians throughout China yeah. um, is is incredible um, and, and horrifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and again, we're short on time, but I want to just quickly ask, have you read the book Heavenly Man? The Heavenly Man? Have you heard about that book? I have not. Um, this is the story of a, a, bi- a biography of a man who was a house church leader in China, uh, persecuted over and over and over and over, and the miraculous escape from prison that was clearly a miracle. And he is now in Canada, I believe, and um, is telling his story about the true nature of communism in China. So it's an older book, but I'd look it up. Um, yes, but we want to get the name of your website in really quickly here before we close out here. Yes. Um, just quickly v- say the victims name of, your of Go ahead. Yes, at victimsofcommunism.org. That's where you can find 
uh, our curricula, our witness projects, and more information. We also have our Victims of Communism Museum website, which you can find from there. So please look us up. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter and other social media, VO Communism. And we look forward to hearing from people. Great. Thank you for being with us, Ambassador Brunberg. And thank you for all of your excellent work there. And you can listen to this podcast or other podcasts at savetheclassroom.com. That's savetheclassroom.com. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next week. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.